Coming to you from the worldwide headquarters in the middle of nowhere, it's the Jim Day Podcast. Hey, welcome in again to the Jim Day Podcast. Whatever the podcast playing device of your choice is, thank you so much for opening that bad boy and clicking on us. And thank you for spreading the word that this bad boy be existing. We do in this podcast. And we hope to do it into the future if you can help us spread the word. If you can go on and you can give us good ratings if you like what you hear. We're off to a pretty good start on this thing with guests like Marty Brenneman, Scooter Jeanette, legendary appearance by Sean Casey, Bob Kavoyan, the Radio Hall of Famer. And we have another treat here today. We're going to tell some stories. We're going to go down memory lane with one of my favorite guys, Bronson Arroyo. If you took one hand and you counted my favorite guys that I've ever covered, no question, Bronson Arroyo is on that list. I'll never forget back in Sarasota, Florida, when the Reds were closing out their run of training and spring training in Sarasota. And he comes over in a trade from the Boston Red Sox. Great trade, by the way. And he shows up and he had the long blonde locks, but it was a little poofier back then. So, you know, we. I kind of saw him first before I heard of the trade, which was weird. But, like, who was that guy? Oh, that's Bronson Arroyo. You mean the cornrows guy from the Red Sox? Helped them win the World Series? Well, how's he going to fit in here? Quickly, I found out he can fit in anywhere. As genuine a person as you will ever meet. And those fans that have come across him, you know firsthand. Let's face it. A lot of celebrities, a lot of people in the public eye, when they're in a public setting, sometimes it's fake. Let's just be real about it. Sometimes it's fake. Not with Arroyo. When he's talking to you, he looks you dead in the eye, and he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room, and you're the only person that matters at that moment. He's brutally honest. Over the years, he would give you an honest answer. Didn't always like the answer. But it was going to come from the heart. Very giving guy. um, Just engaging, friendly, fan-friendly, funny, and has lived a life, let's face it, that many men envy and have envied and continue to envy. And we'll talk about that and many things. We'll talk some baseball, including, you know, you got to love a guy that's going to the mound in a day and age where... Everyone's judging miles per hour on the fastball. Well, Bronson Arroyo was a pitcher's pitcher, thinking man's pitcher. He had to outthink you. He had to throw up that junk up there. He had a sneaky fastball, but it wasn't that blazing fastball. But when he was on, as good as it comes, and pitched through injuries at the end of his career, made a return to the Reds, which was great for us because we got one more year with Bronson. And we will talk about a multitude of things. And this is going to be a two-parter, part one coming your way today. We hope you enjoy it. My treat to bring you Bronson Arroyo here on the Gym Day Podcast. Bronson Arroyo, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So is this the look of retirement? I mean, uh, you got the gla- <laughs> can't see, obviously, but they got the, you got the glasses on, uh, you know, yesterday uh, I saw you at uh, Reds camp. You showed up in uh, shorts and 
just the cash retirement look. Yeah, I don't think it's always casual. I think it's it's uh the the look is I, I would think it's uh it's it's probably more of a changing look on a daily basis than it ever was before. Because before it was like you had to dress a certain way to play baseball, dress a certain way on the road. Now I'm into a few more things, so you might catch me. It's kind of like a I, I, the trunk of my car has always been like a sporting goods store, and that's how I feel about my wardrobe now. So it's like yesterday I was wearing an outfit that you can get a workout in, but then you can parlay that, throw on a pair of pants, and go straight right. to the golf course. And then you might be able to parlay that right to the, the ski slope. So it's kind of like my, my wardrobe <laughs> is, is a little bit more functional for, for multi-sports these days. Well, what's, uh, what's retirement been like? Because the transition for a lot of players is very, very tough. Has it been tougher than you imagined, or has it been all right? No, it's been exactly the way I imagined, really. But, you know, my life is I, – I have played with a lot of guys over the years that it has been very tough of a transition, and that, that's, that's mostly to do with the fact that I, that I made enough money that I don't have to work. You know, yeah. if, I, if I was thinking outside of the game, how, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to put food on the table for my family when is all you've ever known since you were, you know – prior to graduating high school is thinking about playing baseball it would, right. it would it would be very difficult and it'd be a lot of pressure you know there's something about not having a college degree and having no other skill set other than what you have done on the baseball field that I'm sure can be unnerving for people to go out in the world at age 35 40. I ask people what a typical day is like but asking you because you're not a typical person you never have been and I imagine you're not now so I don't know if there's a typical Bronson Arroyo day but is there something close of a routine now? Yeah, I'd, I'd say probably the if I'm not traveling, if I'm not on the road somewhere, either playing some music or visiting some friends around the country or being in some other country, it's it's probably a a, a breakfast, watch a little bit of the morning shows that I've never really watched before, like maybe the T Today Show or something. Um, You're up that early? Wow! <clears throat> a no, I'm bit. impressed. Or maybe I'm catching the rerun. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm no, I'm like a, I'm probably like a nine to nine thirty getting up oh, guy. Okay, I'm still going go. to sleep relatively late, probably yeah. midnight one, two in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, get up, have a breakfast. Usually, I'll lounge around until I can have a second breakfast, maybe a little snack, and then I'll, I'll usually get some sort of a small workout in instead of it being an hour and a half like it used to be with the baseball and everything. It's more of a 20-minute, do some push-ups and calves and ride a stationary bike, and then the next day I might do lunges and curls. You know, I'm just right. kind of moving it a little bit. But then I'm usually trying to do something active. So I'm either going to play golf, trying to go snow ski if it's the winter time, or I'm going to meet with someone. I'm, I might be going to a high school basketball game um, for somebody that I played in the minor leagues with that I haven't right. seen in a long time that lives in the Cincinnati area, or some people back in Florida um, might be going to have dinner with an ex- uh, teammate or coach um, that lives in Tampa or something. So I'm, I'm always trying to to do something, at least one thing for the day that can burn off a little bit of energy and feel like I'm accomplishing something. How's the golf game? Is it getting any better? It's just now getting better. It's been really bad for the last year. And I mean, like <laughs> bad, bad. I mean, I, pl I played the other day with Derek Lowe, who played with me uh, in Boston. Yeah. Well, great starting pitcher. And he's just striping the ball. Just came off of playing a pro-am with, with um, Mulder and Smoltz. And he came oh, in wow. sixth. And these guys can really stroke it. And I'm, yeah. I'm not a good golfer. But I was better. I was a little bit better before I knew anything about the game. And the more that I'm trying to get technical on it, I've gotten worse. But I finally figured out something on the driving range in Cincinnati for about four or five days um, in a row last week. And I took it out to the course yesterday in the rain. Really? Out uh, in Goodyear. And, I, and I, sh I shot a 42 on the back in the rain with my hands freezing cold, which is, would have been impossible uh, just a month ago. So I think I'm about to turn the corner a little bit.
Wow. Very well. It's all about getting off the tee, man, and putting it in the fairway, or you have no shot. And right. I speak from very much experience. Uh, so maybe we'll be able to hit the links one day. Maybe we're about equal golfers. Who know? I'm. I'm it may be the only thing I'm equal at with you in in life because you know you're up on this pedestal. And a lot <laughs> well, of a lot of things. You you like live the life that so many men would love to live. By the way, you know that, right? Yeah. But do you but, get that but, a lot. But trust me, that yeah, absolutely. And I, I I do understand it. and I know it. But I also know that there's a couple of levels up from where I am. And and I'm not saying that, that I aspire to be there. But I've been around people who are you know a notch or two above that. Um, right. A la a guy like Eddie Vedder. Right, who goes literally from the White House all the way to you know standing in front of forty thousand people on a stage, and and you kind of command the room in a way that I I cannot do. And um, but I I'm I'm happy where I am. It's it feels it feels like I, if I really need to, I could I can get to most places in the world if I have to, and get to in, into some situation if I need to. But also, I'm not that recognizable just walking down the street, except for in a couple of places. Well, we're five minutes in and already the first Eddie Vedder mentioned. So I was wondering what the over-under would be on that. And I have a lot to ask you about Eddie Vedder, which we're going to get to. But um, sticking with this retirement thing and just seeing you, and I haven't seen you for a minute since last season at least, but the, the most striking thing to me is seeing you with a smartphone. And for those that don't know, you may have been the last person on earth with a flip phone. And to see you with a smartphone in your hand, I got to tell you, it takes me aback. I know. I've, I, well, I heard Andrew Luck from the Colts also had a, a, a flip phone. And the only reason I know that is because we've been in some union meetings and they've really been stressing in times when there could have been a strike that, you know, you guys really need to save your money and you need to get on the app and the MLB app so you guys can <laughs> yeah. get the, the up, most updated information right. about what's going on. There could be a strike here. And I, and I raised my hand and I said, Tony Clark, I mean, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. I said, you're asking me to save my money, but you want me to buy a phone that cost me a thousand dollars in order to get the app. I got this flip phone here. And he said, can somebody buy that man a phone? He said, uh, you know, he said, you and Andrew Luck are the only two guys in major professional sports with a flip phone still. That is beautiful. But the flip phone, the, we did this test a, a couple years back where you, when you have to text on the flip phone, you've got to do the old school where like number one is A, B, and C, right? Or That's right. number two is, you right, know, the next through letters. the alphabet. Yeah, so. Yeah. You held it out and actually did a text, um, you know, going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and you got to do it even more than that if you want to capitalize. Right. Um, for you to be able to text like that is crazy. It takes so much longer, but you were pretty fast at it. Yeah, I wasn't bad. You know, you didn't realize it, but you were, you were learning how to be kind of like a court reporter in your mind for, for 15 years <laughs> and, and, and knowing how to type and that the reason I figured that out is because not you would, you wouldn't do it on a normal basis, but if you're driving a car and you didn't want to look at the phone, yeah. you'd still have the ability to get a quick text off without having to take your eyes off the road. And now that I have a smartphone, it's actually harder in my mind to text straight up on it because the, the letters are so close together and you can make more of a mistake. Right. So I wind up talk texting all the time now, which obviously makes it much easier than it was. Top, talk but text. with that too, you got to do it. You got to have a proofreader for that as well. Exactly. Some of the things that you send me, be like, wait, I didn't say that. That's or right. if you, you know, if you want to curse, it, it doesn't exactly let you curse. No, I wanted to say that. That's you know, right. I, well, I, 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 find I didn't myself, say I, I want, I don't give a shot. 
That's right. S-H-O-T. I said something else. That's right. <laughs> I find myself talking into the phone with, with personality and inflection, yeah. and it, does, it doesn't read it well. Right. And I, so, I, so I have to yeah. – I'm, I'm talking to my friends where I'm putting an exclamation point, and I want right. something to be funny, but yet the phone, I have to talk in this deadpan for to, to understand right. what I'm oh, saying. Yeah. Well, strange. you got to get into the emoji world to know your, your, feel, your emotions, That's I guess. True. Have That's you done true. the emojis yet? A, a little bit. Not, not a ton. I don't like to yeah. talk in tons of emojis, but it is a nice – a thumbs up is nice to give back an answer yeah. of uh, instead or of the just one the okay. where it's smiling and crying like crying, you're laughing, right. crying or whatever. It, it is hard to to get the mood of the the, the message through text. So, welcome to uh, the new world, eh? Um, also in retirement, and I, if you don't want to talk about this, fine. But I, I think this is hilarious. You have you were a guy that took care of your money. I mean, you made a lot of money in baseball. Let's face it. Um, a lot of guys, man, they. When they retire or later in life, they don't have the money. They just weren't smart with it. Um, for, to my knowledge, you were smart with your money, right? I yeah, mean, absolutely. Um, but you're, you're a financial guy. You told me that you you said, hey, I've taken care of you know my family and, and who I want to take care of um, for life, and I've made investments, et cetera. So I'm not taking, you know, when I leave this earth, I'm not taking it with me. So what's my burn rate? That's right. Which is, can yeah, you well, explain that, this? This that, is awesome. So that, that came about, so my, my banker is actually Mike Leake's father-in-law. Mike married wow. um, his daughter, Catherine, who he went to uh, Arizona State with. And I, I had been with him long before that and um, have a great relationship with him. And so he, he came to, to actually came to Vieira, Florida when I was with the Washington Nationals mm-hmm. with Dusty Baker. They told me my shoulder was shot and I'd probably never pitch again. And I was thinking that I, I might not ever get back. So he came down, and uh, we were just kind of talking about it, and he said, what do you want to do with your budget? And I, and I said, I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me how much money I can spend from now until I'm 80 years old and I only have a little bit left. And, um, and he <laughs> said, what? And I said, yeah, just tell me what my burn rate is. I want to know <laughs> like, how hard I can go until we just siphon this thing down right. to, to be about 80 years old. I said, after 80, I mean, you know, just my major league pension, I'm sure, would, would at least get me a small apartment. <laughs> <And> so... <laughs> So he laughed. He said he'd been doing, you know, banking for 40 years and he'd never heard that before ever. But, you know, I've I all, never heard it either. Right. But, I, you know, most people, if if they have amassed in a, some sort of amount of wealth in their life, they're usually always thinking about the next generation. And, and I don't have a family and I don't have kids. So, you know, I'm thinking about life on a, in a different way that that when I'm gone, there's not going to be many people left. And, and you know, if, if life is normal, if my plane doesn't go down, right? Right. Um, I'm just assuming that my parents won't be around and possibly my sister won't be around. And most of the people in my life, if I live to be old enough, wouldn't necessarily be around. So, you know, you plan for a rainy day in case something tragic happens and that's what you have a will for and stuff. But if we're just talking about purely how you're going to spend your money, you know, I don't want to leave the planet with, with, with $30 million in the bank because, right. you know, I feel like you got one shot at this thing. You might as well enjoy it. And, and there's definitely tons and tons of friends and people in your life, loved ones that work for thirty-five, $40,000 a year who, right. who, who are my age, if not older, and you, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. So it's, it's very pleasing to use that money to say, Hey, let me get, get you out of that nine to five grind and take you somewhere that you never would go, whether it was Australia or Antarctica or Alaska or Costa Rica, and just have an experience here while we're here and, and enjoy the time. What did he give it to you by month? Do you have a monthly yeah, burn rate? Yeah, is exactly, that what it is? Exactly. So it's like a <laughs> monthly burn rate. He just like shoves, uh, uh, money over into my small little, um, hometown bank 
from his bank and and then oh I, wow so it's i mean it's like an allowance yeah 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 <laughs> like yeah the parents, i mean exactly. it's a large allowance but yes. it's not like the parents yeah absolutely it's like an allowance and that and you know i i've always enjoyed um things being very simple you know i've i played the game in a way to where um people ask me how i survived so long and sometimes how i had always a really consistent personality and a lot of it had to do with i didn't have a lot of chaos going on in my life for the most part yeah. and i could i could clearly think of all the moving parts of my life which allowed me to stay focused on the game and I wanted my money to feel that way in retirement so you know he, he, he was kind of hinting around about how you wanted to budget this thing and I said let's make it very simple you just shove the exact same amount of money into my account every month and I'll just burn through it and then you just shove it to me again and have I'll you burn been through burning it through it yeah but most of the, I mean a lot of the times I'm giving you know I'm giving thousands of dollars away every month a lot of times because life is hard and people call all the time but I haven't gone over my budget but I haven't I definitely Definitely haven't saved any of it. Well, which is what I'm, you know, what what I intended it to be. I'll leave you with my uh, banking information. <laughs> you if go. you're giving thousands hey, of dollars. Listen, away. I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. He 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 used to say to me, you know, like Bronson. He's like, there's a couple of guys who've saved more money than you pound for pound. But he goes, for how much you've saved, you you wire out more money to more people on this planet than I have ever seen. And you know, it's just a. Uh, it's just something that you just realize how hard the world is. And, and you know, $1,000 to me is just not on the same scale to someone else. Right. And um, I'm, assu I'm assuming a guy like Bill Gates, or hopefully he feels that way about his, you know, billions of dollars. And that's why he gives so, so many hundreds of millions to charity as well. And, and um, you know, for me, I feel like my friends and family, I have a large group of those. And in, in some ways, it feels like that's my charity. You know, I, right. I, I, I like to go hard for them to enjoy a little bit of the time before we're all too old to, to really appreciate a zip line or, you know, a, a deep sea fishing right. excursion. Well, for as long as I've known you, you've been uh, very generous in that regard. And none bigger example than you always take care of the clubbies when you were playing. Yeah. Um, you had a very close relationship with the clubbies and took them on trips, did you not? Yeah, I took all those guys um, to Costa Rica one year. We, we spent a week down there surfing and, and fishing and zip lining. And uh, yeah, you know, there, there's something about rooting for the underdog that's always been a little pleasant for me, you know. And, and if you just if you're in a locker room long enough, what you observe about the clubhouse guys and for people who don't know what that is, it's it's the guys who put out the food, they clean the uniforms, they're mm -hmm. running errands for players. Right. And the, these guys are there longer than anyone else, not only on a daily basis, but they're also there for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So they see changes um, in, man in managers. They see changes in ownership. And most of the time, those guys stay down there. The Stowe family obviously has been around for, you know, since the 40s, since Bernie right. was there. And so um, you see how they get treated a lot of times as subordinates kind of, um, they fly under the radar. They're, they're salt of the earth. Great guys. They all are cut out of the same kind of mold. A lot of times right. where they have a very um, somewhat shy personality, um, love to go out and have a beer with the guys afterwards. They're, they've been made almost inside of a baseball locker room in right. the way that they've been chiseled out in their character. And they're just really great guys to be around. And, and I don't like, I didn't never enjoyed seeing them always have to, to serve the player and then the player not give as much respect whether it was monetary or just out of, you know, right. pure respect, um, as I enjoyed. And so I always try to treat these guys a little bit differently. Just, you know, they're my friends. They, they're not like someone working for me. And, and so, um, 
as years gone went on and I was in that red locker room longer and longer, you, you obviously become closer and closer to these guys. And so these days, to be honest with you, when I think about going out to Reds camp, as I did yesterday, I want to say hi to everyone. I want to see guys like you in the media and I want to see everybody that have been around all these years. But if I had to say who are my number one guys, it's going to be the clubhouse guys. I like to see those guys. I like to clean the shoes. I like to pass out the laundry. I just, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're my cup of tea and I enjoy being around them. And you lived up, you told them that you're going to come back after you retired, you're going to clean shoes and you lived up to that last yeah, year. Yeah, I know. I know. I remember the day I said that too because it was the day we were going in the playoffs in 2012 and they had put all the starting pitchers on the Jumbotron with our ages. And so it said, it said Mike Leak, Johnny Cueto, Matt Latos, Homer Bailey, Bronson Arroyo. And everybody was basically, it was like 24, 25, 27, 29, 37 or whatever it was. And I was basically 10 years older than Latos and Leak. Yeah. And so um, they were calling me grandpa and they were laughing. And I, and I said, well, first of all, I said, one of you two guys talking to Leak and Latos, I said, one of you two is going to have to retire before me which did happen not 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 officially but right. Latos hasn't pitched in a big league game right uh, after I did and the other thing was um I said I want to see if you guys are still pitching when you're 40 but I in in, in that conversation I said well you know don't worry I said I'm gonna be here to watch you guys because I said I'm gonna be here cleaning the shoes and passing out the uniforms when y'all are freaking like 35 and I want to see if y'all are still ponying <laughs> it up like me and so that's where that conversation came from and, and last year I, I went back there and I'll be back there this year and it won't be every day there's sometimes you just go in there and you're not going to clean shoes and pass out laundry but but I've got a I've got my own clubby uh top my, my my jersey their uniform with my name on which it which is outstanding yeah by the way. it's fantastic rick, <laughs> rick made me that and uh it's uh it's a good time down there with those guys well you've always, always been down to earth and um you've always you told me stories in the past about um helping out even in your younger days of your career uh when you were with the pirates helping out the hispanic players who come to america and they don't you know not only can't they speak the english but um just paying bills, right? Simple things like that that you helped them with, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was I was in the rookie league, so you, you know what people don't realize is when you when you get drafted by a major league team, people have this idea that you get drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates and you immediately go into the locker room in Pittsburgh and you're a big league ball player and everything's hunky dory and you're comfortable and you're making a million bucks. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. You you go straight to the rookie league if you're a high school kid. Mm -hmm. I went to Bradenton, Florida, and you're thrust into about 150 to 200 players that are already there and have already been there for multiple years, most of them. So they're, they're, they're accustomed to how you get fed and, you know, the inner workings of that world, how you make a phone call. There's no cell phones at the time, right? Um, the, the, what our curfew is, you know, what, what will go on on a daily basis inside this world and everybody's already comfortable. So you're kind of like the new kid on the block and there's probably 40 or 50 of us coming right. as the new kids on the block. And you're trying to figure out this world. Well, as I observed that world in a real short amount of time, I realized that there was all the white guys sitting in the cafeteria on one side and all the black guys and all the Hispanics and they, everybody was totally segregated. Uh, probably a little bit more similar to a high school, but probably yeah. not even that close, right? It was like right. everybody was sticking with their own kind. And so um, I had grown up in a house where my last name was Arroyo and my father was from Cuba. So I, um, you know, I, I lived in Key West until I was 10 years old and there was such a, a, um, a Spanish culture there with the food you were eating and everything about it that I was used to 
being in places at times where I didn't understand the Spanish and also the the body language of a Latin guy, the way he would talk, maybe more volatile and with his hands and stuff. And so I wasn't fearful of it. And I just always by nature was kind of a guy who just, you know, just thought, you know, if I give out some kindness, I'll give out some goodness, I'll, I'll get a little bit of it back. So really quickly, you know, a lot of the guys in that camp who didn't have cars, I, I, I was 90 miles away from home, which I got really lucky to be drafted by a mm -hmm. team that was so close to home. I started taking these guys to the mall and to the grocery store and a few different things and come to find out 20 years later when I talk to these guys now, because I still hang with them and I take some of these guys to Costa Rica, they say to me, the reason that we loved you so much was you were the first guy who ever came in here with a car who didn't ask us for gas money. Wow. And I thought, oh, I would have never thought about asking you guys for gas money. It was a couple of bucks, you know, it's yeah. five, but whatever. And they said, yeah, we used to scrape up like our change just to give somebody $5 in order yeah. for them to take us down to the mall. So, you know, that started in 1995. And then they realized very quickly that there was no hidden agenda with me and that I was just doing it out of pure love for another human being. And so that also went on to 1996 and 97 and 98. Now we're traveling around the country. We have to get our apartments. We've got to get furniture. We've got to get to and from the ballpark every day. And so I'm taking a, guys like Aramis Ramirez, Abraham Nunez, um, Nelson Antigua, you know, this whole group of, of mostly Dominican guys and some Puerto Rican guys um, in the pirate organization. I'm taking them to the park every day. I'm, I'm you know, without me, they're going to have a really hard time kind of yeah. get, getting by. And so, you know, by the time I got to the big leagues, it was really nice sometimes to be in Wrigley field and have a guy like a Ramos Ramirez who had 15 years in the game, look at some of our young red Dominican guys and say, Hey man, this guy right here, he's the real deal. And you know, they could feel a little bit of it, but maybe not know it for sure. And when a guy like a Ramos said, no, 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 no. Look at me. When I tell you, this guy's the real shit. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the real thing. Well, when, you know, and, and I want to talk about this um, last year that you had with the Reds, which I, I imagine had to be tough. I mean, you're you're pitching on fumes, um, <laughs> and but they not only did they want you there to fill a slot um, pitching, but they wanted just what you're talking about to have some influence on these young players. So was it at least gratifying in that regard? I know on the field it was probably tough for you, but was that one of the tougher years or was it more gratifying for you? You know, I I I think it was it was just par for the course, you know. It just it just was, you know, after having the two surgeries, I I had realized that even going into that spring, you know, I needed a cortisone shot just to make it through that spring. You know, right. what people don't really realize is I went into that camp and I you know, I talked with Dr. Kremchuk before that, and I said, listen, I'm not even going to make it out of camp if I don't get another cortisone shot in my shoulder. It's the only thing keeping it in one, you know, feeling like it's in one piece, even though it's not. And so he did that just before I went out to camp, and that was going to give me the opportunity to try to pitch. I was hoping that I could make it to midseason, get one more, and then that would get me over the hump, and maybe I would just get a full season out of it, or maybe something would have changed, and maybe my body would have adapted in some right. way, which just didn't happen. But given, given what had happened the two years before, and I had been grinding so hard to get my shoulder and elbow to feel good, I, I knew I had my back to the wall, and I, and I knew that it was going to be – more likely than not that I wouldn't make it out of that rabbit hole for this last time. And so for me, it, it really wasn't frustrating at all. Um, I was really, uh, you know, I think I was three and one at some point leading the team in wins. It was like end of May and people were like, wow, I don't know how this guy's getting this done. And that yeah. felt really nice to actually contribute mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't just charity. Right. Um, and then as my arm started sliding downhill, there, there was a small window there where, you know, where, where it was not frustrating, but you just... 
it's not fun going into a war when you just know you're completely overmatched because right. your uh, your elbow you can't even play catch the four days in between your start. You're not right. throwing a bullpen. It's swelling up like crazy. And to be honest with you, you know I would have never been out there as, as many times as I was if it wasn't for Brian Price. You know Brian. I think Brian really valued me and who I was as a person so much that he gave me a, a longer rope than anyone in this game would have ever done. And, um, you know, in the end, he called me in the office there about midseason and he said, how you feeling? And I said, hey, listen, it's, it's time for me to let the young guys pitch. You know, I'm not yeah. helping this ball club out. I'm, I'm, I'm in pain. My velocity's going down and I'm getting my butt kicked and I need at least one of those three to be um, on the upswing in order for me to, to continue. So I, I didn't. Um, it wasn't frustrating though. I, I, the only part that got to me a little bit, I'd say it was super gratifying to hang out with the guys, especially because you had so many young guys in that locker room. And so to be able to give them true yeah. love and not have to think about pitching anymore, I could really focus on these guys yeah. and talk more. Um, I'd say the one part that was, that was frustrating was the games were three hours and 10 minutes every day. Cause we weren't pitching well and they started to feel like four hour games. And, and yeah. that, that was when I told Brian, I said, Hey man, he, in September, he called me and he said, how you doing? And I said, listen, I, it's like my senior year of high school, man, I'm ready to get out of here. Cause it was just, the games yeah. were starting to drag oh, on. Yeah. It was unheard of after you stopped pitching. They kept you around the ball club. You were still traveling with the team, right. and I wanted to, I wanted to do that. Yeah. I, there was no way I was going to be able to go home. It wouldn't have right. felt like closure to me. Yeah. It was nice to be with the ball club. I was still working out every day. I was shagging fly balls. I was playing catch some days. Yeah, but um, you know, it, listen. At the end of the day, man, I when you when you leave when I when I when I at the end of the rookie league, at the end of every minor league season, at the end of every big league season, there was a, a very strange feeling of like you're leaving high school, like I might not ever see these people again. You're driving down the road, you're being very nostalgic about what has just happened, transpired, and, and, and it can bring a tear to your eye, you know? So right. there was no way it wasn't going to feel like that in my last year playing in big league uniforms. So there was, there was a good bit of that, but I will, will say it felt to me like I got to leave on my own terms, like I had exhausted everything yeah. in my body. And so it, 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 it didn't feel like I got pushed out of the game like I have seen a lot of guys who have had much better careers than myself. Well, you certainly uh, were the, uh, what do you call, you called yourself the entertainment director at some point or, or something? <laughs> yeah, or, or, yeah I, was, I was running a radio show. I don't know what it was. Right. And I was now telling... explain this radio show. This is awesome. <laughs> on the team bus, the, the yes. buses, um, there's one bus for the coaches and for us broadcaster dorks, et cetera, and the team personnel. And then there's a player's bus, which right. you have your own separate bus, and that's where it's player's time. Right. Um, so you got on the loudspeaker, which happens a lot on buses, right. uh, and had your own radio show, correct? Is that when it happened? Yeah, well, there would be – over the years, it was a slow process. It, it started with me making these, these pre, pre – uh, pre-made CDs for dressing up the rookies. Whenever we would dress the rookies up in September, right. instead of just having a, someone on a microphone, because it's very hard to be funny on the spot for anyone, right? I mean, we're not comedians by nature, and, and you also have all this pressure, and you got guys yelling on the bus. So I started pre-making these things so I could add some, some funniness in there. I could edit it. I could make sure the volumes were accurate. I could have music in the background. And so I started making these tapes where we make fun of these guys, make them dance, do whatever we were going to do <laughs> on the bus, and you would time it out. So you know, I knew we were landing in Pittsburgh, and I know it takes 22 minutes to get to the hotel from Pittsburgh so I can have a 22-minute wow. tape. So, you, so look at you go. Yeah, so you're having to put in this effort, but – that's where it started and then as years went on the last that last year there it was you know we had scott feldman on the team and he, and um funny guy he's a funny guy as well so 
So we started having this radio show and I started doing the show a little bit more live, but I would write the script out a lot of times, or I at least would have a format of what I was going to talk about. And we would talk about whatever we were going to go do in that next city. So it would be, you know, we're on our way to Milwaukee. I'm going to talk about current events in Milwaukee, current events in Cincinnati, the weather, nightlife, all these different things, but I'm going to be infusing jokes and I'm going to be ripping on guys on the team as well. And we also, we used to have this great segment because we called uh, Scott, Scott uh, Feldman, we called him the big fern. You remember that? We called him the big furnace. Big furnace. I don't know where that nickname came from, but it suited him <laughs> perfect. And so we had a segment on the show called Hot Takes with the Big Fern. Ooh. And that was where any player <laughs> could anonymously text message his phone number. And I would announce his phone number on the radio show in the beginning of the show. So then all these anonymous text messages would start flowing in as I'm doing my segments. Right. So by the time we got to his segment, he was just loaded with all these text messages. And the text messages were you could complain, say anything you wanted about any other player anonymously and rip on them. And it would just be read out loud. And that so is outstanding. It was, it was one of the best segment segments we ever had and every, we did it once and it was it was such a hit that we had were to guys do it. just killing other guys oh it was hilarious i mean guys were absolutely destroying each other <laughs> <laughs> especially you know the young guys like like amir garrett and sal romano and that whole group of guys yeah. like finnegan they've really hung out a lot together oh, yeah. and they came up with the minor leagues together so they really have a good um they poke fun at each other constantly anyway and so it was really nice to get that stuff on the show was it uh Pretty raunchy, probably stuff you couldn't talk about on this podcast. Most of the stuff, most of the stuff wasn't that raunchy, really. It was just like guys trying to find that that little loophole and you know talk oh, about yeah. a guy like Finnegan and maybe he's a little too chunky right now. And like a Homer Bailey looks like he's got you know the the cowboy prom haircut or just just smashing guys and like and listen and Vado would be on the show. I would be on the show. Guys would rip onto me and and they and, ripped and, you and Vado. Oh, they would rip, come on. They'd rip man. me and Vado on the show too. Absolutely. You know Joey's the type of guy who wants it to make sure it's. There. So he was just egging people to, to throw him into the show. But most of the young you know, guys were too, that from Joe. Some yeah. of the guys were too of, scared. The first impression of Joe would people would think, wow, they, they he doesn't want any part of that. Yes. He wants to be right he in there. He wants mix. to be in there because yeah. he already knows that he's kind of segregated in a lot of ways just because of who he is, yeah. how he approaches the game and stuff, and, and also his status monetarily wow. and, and being an MVP. So he wants to feel like one of the boys and he doesn't want to be kind of an outcast. I need to steal that idea sometime with the broadcasters. <laughs> yeah, that is a good idea. You guys, you guys run hot. I need to do a broadcast of a podcast, excuse me, of hot takes, Ooh, that's, including the broadcasters. That'd be oh, real nice, including Marty Brenneman. See if Marty, yeah. See, I've got a lot of you know. I'm so far behind. I mean, I got to catch up on on him giving me grief. That would be great <laughs> to anonymously. Right stuff yeah, out. You, you'd probably have to get you'd have to get Johnny and Pete and Joe Morgan to come give you some hot takes because those oh, are the guys. Yeah, those no are doubt. the guys who were probably initiating. They used to hang in seventy five, yeah. seventy six. You know, Marty was a young What's guy. What's so different? Marty back then was around the age of those players, right. and would hang with those guys. But now it's totally different. Totally I mean, different. There's no. Uh, I mean. Yeah, that, that, he's that, not anti-player, but he certainly doesn't hang out with the right. players. Yeah. yeah, and that doesn't happen anymore. No. Even even when I was young in the early 2000s, I was in the big leagues, and it was a no-no really to be hanging out with any of the coaches because oh, yeah. I don't know, I don't really know why, but it just it started getting to the point where it, it just it didn't. Uh, I guess if if thing you know if you're out if you're out carousing a little bit and you're having a few drinks, you know there was a night I was in Milwaukee with a guy named Kevin Barker and it was uh, Matt Krause that was the strength coach at the time. Yeah. And we walked into this place and this fight broke out literally within two minutes of being there. I mean, I just grabbed a drink, this huge fight. I'm talking a hundred people fighting and it came out. It's just like this giant swarm. And Krause knew that if I got hurt in there, it was like mid season that he was probably going to be in trouble. So, you know, he's, 
he's like, you know, def- defending us and literally like forearming people off and pushing me out the door. You know, and luckily we got out on the street pretty quickly. But, you know, those types of situations are what people are trying to avoid because their job Absolutely. can be on the line. Well, now that I think about it, if Marty would send anonymous texts about me. I probably wouldn't be able to read them on this podcast because we try to keep it semi-family friendly. So I don't know. I might have to steal that. If you see that in the future, I will give I will give you credit before we yeah, do. You have it. to. That, that was actually that was that was that was uh, Scott Feldman's idea. So yeah, you, you that had, is a great idea. You have to call him up and give yeah. him his one percent. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now this podcast is totally free so um that last year again with the reds i've never seen you you come into the spring training complex and up on the bulletin board is basically the daily what's going to happen you know there's meeting at this time stretching at this time pitchers throwing at this time bp etc and lo and behold i show up one morning and it says story time with bronson was on the schedule That's right. and then it was on there regularly so what was this was this just you standing up because we're not in the clubhouse at this point this is just players there's no media in there um what was it that was so so that to give people an idea and spring training is the one time that you you get to meet every morning and there's more obviously more than 25 guys in there because there's a hundred yeah. and something people in camp and the manager usually has a little something to say you go over the schedule of the day this doesn't happen in regular season regular season you just look on a board everybody comes at a clubhouse and you're kind of just doing your own thing end up on the field when you're supposed to and, and get right. after it but in spring training there's always that meeting and dusty was the guy who really set precedent in those meetings and i think guys like brian price really got to see how it was to have that ebb and flow right. of a manager holding court in the morning and throwing in some funny stuff. And so when Dusty left, um, I observed this with a couple other teams. But when I got back to the Reds in 2017, there was always in the morning, somebody was supposed to tell a joke. And so you'd observe guys go up there and it was like asking them to sing karaoke in front of everybody half the time, you know, just to tell a joke, guys are turning bright red and it's just terribly uncomfortable. Right. And, um, so I, you know, as that was going on, I wanted to tell a couple of longer jokes but I didn't want people to know that it was a joke because I was telling the story as if it was real. In fact, until the punchline came at the very end and then you realize like, oh, this is not true. And so, <laughs> so that, that I had them build it as story time with Bronson because I didn't want them to know they were getting a joke out of the gate. And also the locker room was so young at the time and I had been gone for a few years that you know a lot of the young guys knew I was a good guy because you know the interaction I would have with them, but they really didn't know me that well. So you know when I'm telling this story, it was believable until... You know, until the very, very end when I dropped the punchline on on a guy like Billy Hamilton and everybody's dying laughing. And then they realize, oh, that was just uh, another joke coming. How about the uh, real stories? Because everyone talks about the stories that you have on the banquet circuit, you know, uh, when you're a player or your playing days are over. You go to speak to a group or whatever. Um, How many you have to have hundreds of stories. Yeah, to you entertain know, people. You know what's funny is I, I haven't done that a lot. You see a guy like Johnny Bench who's constantly on that circuit of talking, and they have, yeah, they always have their handful of stories they can tell. I was with Catfish Hunter last year at a LaSalle Stag, and he, he did that, and you could tell he was telling stories that he had probably told many, many times. Yeah. And I don't necessarily have very – I have a ton of stories, but they're not – I haven't pulled them out and, and put them in a format to right. where they're, they're clear in my head like that. It depends on the situation. You know, I, I tend to, I tend to think about baseball in, in a different way. You know, when I, when I want to talk about the game, a lot of times, especially if it's to student athletes or younger people, I start talking more about where 
um, when I got drafted in the rookie league, I thought everybody was going to be a dynamite player because they all had physical ability. And then by the end of my first year in 96, I realized that only three or four of us were going to make it to the big leagues. And it had nothing to do with everyone's physical ability, but the ability to adapt mentally and emotionally to what was going on, having to pay for your own rent, stay out of the bars at night, deal with the homeless, you know, the homesickness of your girlfriend, all, yeah. all these things. I tend to start going down that and I start beating down that door a little bit, but just fun. I have a ton of funny stories. You know, that Red Sox locker room was crazy. Um, well, let's go there. Since let's, let's just consider this a, a banquet hall. A banquet hall. The, the, the podcast <laughs> banquet hall. You know, right the funny, here. yeah, I'm trying to think now because now when you really start thinking about it, yeah. you know, I've got a lot of stories, but most, most stories are funnier when you're cussing. And two, a lot of them entail stuff about guys that they wouldn't necessarily want out in, in the world. But, well, yeah, um, that's true. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many. I mean, there was times when, you know, Kevin Millar was one of the best teammates I've ever had. He was funny, quick-witted. I mean, you could not beat this guy at a game of verbal judo. It was just like he was just impossible. Um, he had a loud voice that carried across the locker room, and he was always just revving. That. That's the reason that, that Red Sox team was the way it was, because Kevin was the catalyst who made Manny Ramirez and, and David Ortiz come out of their shell. And now we've got Pedro running around. Um, you know, with this little guy named Nelson, who was the shortest man in the world at the time. And you've got Curtis Laskanik and Derek Lowe. I mean, we've got so many ADD guys. You got Johnny Damon, who's, you know, running around the locker room naked literally five minutes before the game and like leads off with a triple. And you're like, how did you just do that? You didn't even stretch. You're just like pushing chairs over. There was always this craziness going on. But I remember there was times with a Millar one time he was, he was, uh, Schilling was always kind of a, I've told the story a few times that he, Schilling was, um, he was a little messy, like his locker was kind of a messy locker and he could come in a lot of times he'd stay up really late playing a lot of video games and he and you could always tell the day games and stuff, he was dead tired. Right. So he'd come in and a lot of times his clothes would just be laid on the ground. And this one time in Seattle, he just th took his jeans off and his and his boxers and just left them like he just put them down at his ankles and just walked away from them. And, and, the, and in his boxers, it just looked like he had gone to the bathroom and didn't even wipe. Like, it was terrible. And so, literally, like within two minutes, and you know, in that Red Sox team, you've got like oh, triple yeah. the amount of media that we carry with the Reds. Yeah. So, there, there's probably 40 or 50 people hanging around this thing and out of nowhere, I mean, just on a dime, Millar shows up with tops and bottoms of like Dr. Scrubs. He's got one of those masks you use like a hazmat mask that has a shield over the front with clear glass. He's got one of those red buckets you're supposed to put all the syringes in and a giant set of tongs and, 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 and a doctor's, a white doctor's mask thing. And he's, he just picks, picks his boxers up with a tong and just screaming, quick, quick. He's like, he said something like, you know, I make $11 million a year and I think one of Schilling's kids' name was Garrick, and he says, I make $11 million a year, but I still poop my pants like Garrick. And he's shoving his, his boxers in this in this uh, this hazmat bucket. And, um, you know, stuff like that was just, it just happened on a daily basis in that locker room. You know, yeah. it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a wild place to be. But, you know, even back to the minor leagues, you would get put in compromised positions to where, you know, I can remember one night I was in Chapel Hill, and you went out to a bar, and, we didn't have a ride home and back then there's no Uber and you couldn't find a ride home. So somebody who's with us, a couple of guys, we talked to some girl, can you give us a ride home? She says, yeah, but there's not enough room in the car. I end up in the trunk of the car. You know, I'm like riding home in the trunk of a car with a horse saddle and I can't see anything. And it's like a 25 minute ride back to where we're staying at the hotel. Oh, and the guys are like pulling the seats from the back up going, you're right back there. Can you breathe? You know, it's just like, there's just so many, there's so many things that happened from the rookie league all the way, even before you got to the big leagues, mm -hmm. because, you know, you're traveling around the country and you're a young guy and you've got some zest and you want to get out to a bar and talk to people and do that. And sometimes you get put in some weird positions. You didn't have money to get home. It's just 
um, you know, baseball, what you see in Bull Durham was a, a very good depiction. But as you ramp that up to the big leagues and then you get money and you have money and you have a little bit more amenities around and then your friends come around and then you go to the club and you're playing with the Red Sox and every single person knows your face and they're literally like pulling your clothes at the club like you're getting swarmed. You know what I mean? There's just kind of a, a whole gamut of things that almost are unbelievable to yourself. You, you, you think back upon your career and you think like, how did I, how did I ever get on the steps of a state house, you know, in Vermont and the governor telling my driver that he drive as fast as you want, as long as you're in the state of Vermont. Cause I know Bronson needs to get to the children's hospital. So go 110 miles an hour. And if any, really? and if any state trooper call, pulls you over, you tell him to call me. It's like, <laughs> you think, how did I get here? You know, I got cornrows in my hair and this guy's saying, drive as fast as you can, as long as you want, as long as you're in my state. Just That's beautiful. Now, now, will we ever see a book one day of, once you document that, is there going to be a day where you like, you, you said, I haven't really listed out this stuff where you kind of just go through your career and think about, okay, this happened and this happened. That would make a good book that obviously you want to protect people that don't want their story out there. Maybe right. you have to get permission from people to do it. Ever thought of anything right. like that? Yeah, I've had, I've had, I've had a, um, so a freelance writer who, who's music, really a music writer who, who, uh, out of Boston, um, his name's Tom Kilty and he writes, um, you know, he's done pieces for, for Rolling Stone and, and, you know, every Boston um, paper musically. I mean, you'd see two or three shows a night. He's always wanted to do, do something on me. And also, um, Zach, the old Reds um, yeah. <clears throat> reporter or beat writer that now is back with um, the D-backs, you know, he, he's wanted to do he's, – he's offered that as well. And I, I think I, I'm going to want to put something down at some point, I think. But, you know, it's hard, it's hard to think about what direction to go in because, you know, you have stories – like you said, and you know, you've got to be very careful about whether those stories are in something or not, or in print. You don't want to offend other guys. You don't want to irritate other people. I, I, I when I think about telling my story, I, you know, it, it comes more about the fact that I grew up in a weight room in a very unusual circumstance, um, down in the keys with a father who had me lifting weights, like, like an Olympian, um, and thinking about baseball at such an early age, that is the story that I tend to, to lean on when I think about that. As far as like, there, there's been a lot of books where guys talk about their experiences in a big league locker room and about some funny stories. And I'm just not so sure how that can be done really, because I mean, the truth of it is the funniest things, I mean, usually are like sex, drugs and rock and roll. Right. And, 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 and it just is, it's, you know, it's the debauchery of the world. I mean, without the shenanigans, man, sometimes it's, it's not any fun. And I, and I, and I'm not ashamed of anything I've ever done really, or ever said, I try to, you know, when you put your head down at night, I sleep like a baby every night because I'm happy with the way that I've gone about my business. But, but that doesn't mean that I can't tell a story about a guy who's got three kids and is on his right. second marriage and maybe doesn't even want anyone to know that he was ever at a bar having a drink. Right. And so, you know, it's hard for me to think of how I'm going to kind of slice that and I don't want to mess it up. So I don't know. I think about it and I think at some point I'll, I will have a book out, but I don't know how much of the juicy stuff it's going to have. In well, it. you're right. I mean, the books that sell or make news of the one or the tell all ones you know i i like to garner attention just as everyone else does but i like to garner attention for authentic reasons yeah. i want i want i don't want people to come listen to me musically because i was a baseball player i want them to come listen musically because they say i think that sounds good right you know and sometimes you got to get them through the door first even to prove that but but you know i i'm, I'm not really about that's why I haven't had anything but a flip phone up to this point, you know, and, and didn't want much to do with the social media 
which in some ways can 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 bite you because now you don't have as many you don't have a big of a fan base to go out and play musically because maybe you know I could have had seven hundred fifty thousand followers had I been Brandon Phillips who was on the plane tweeting every single night right. about uh, some things about what was going on on the plane but I just didn't choose to do that and if I wrote a book I would I would want it to be from a standpoint where you were you know you're talking a little bit more about life and, and the way that you came down and what what was so special about it I think and hopefully you could get to where you could blend in some of those stories that would. Right. Make people smile and, and, and give them a little insight to something that might happen in a big league locker room they wouldn't be privy to. Well, I mean, you're an interesting guy. So even if you didn't write the tell-all stuff, just listening to you talk about really anything. I mean, you're so down-to-earth and so connected with the average person that I think eventually you know, people w- would read your stuff and be interested in it. And I, I'm just speaking from someone that has read a lot of those books and has been around the game, so... I don't know. We'll see what happens down there. Now, speaking of authentic, there's nothing more authentic than the way you pitched and the way you got it done. Um, we're in a day and age of baseball now, or if you don't hit 95 on the radar gun, you won't even, might not even get scouted. Um, but the the fact that you were so, so talented with the way that you pitched and you didn't have that high velocity, um, nothing more authentic than the way you got it done in my eyes. Yeah, you know the, the guy—the guy that I uh, really aspired to be growing up. I, I loved Ozzie Smith. He was—he was my hero as a kid because I played shortstop all the way through my senior year of high school. But when I was watching pitching, I was just absolutely uh, amazed how Greg Maddox could put up the numbers he was putting up. And then as I got into professional baseball and got to the big leagues and realized how hard it was to win 15 games yeah. and to have an ERA under four, much mm-hmm. less under three for your entire career, you know. Um, I really valued the way that he got guys out without power. Now, when I was a kid, I threw really hard compared to the average kid. And so, you know, I could just be that Roger Clemens, you know, or that Dwight Gooden at that time when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was a flamethrower compared to most kids. But by the time I got to be 13, 14, 15, a lot of the um, the, the kids had started to shave and gotten a little bit bigger and stronger than I was at the time. And then I kind of caught up my senior year of high school and then went on. But then once you got into the minor leagues, you realized there was, there was guys all over the country who threw harder than me. You know, I just wasn't a, really a hard thrower. I was a guy who threw 87 to 89. That's where I was going to live for most of the time. And if I hit 90 or 91 on, on a good day, then I probably would have a few more strikeouts. But, um, you know, I was always kind of keen to strategy. My father turned that on in my head as a kid. Even if I had the ability to punch out 17, which you would do some days, you know, in a six inning game um, when you were in, you know, in little league, he still was always talking about disrupting um, kind of timing. And and we were trying to to create things out there, uh, kind of the way Johnny Cueto does with the different movements, leg kicks, Mm -hmm. arm angles and different things. And so my brain was turned on for that. So by the time I got to the minor leagues, I kind of realized in in the minors that I couldn't really blow the fastball by guys and it just wasn't going to happen. And so I, you know, I just immediately clicked into the mode of how I got guys out um, most of my life, which was, you know, you're in some form or fashion, you're kind of, tr- you're trying to trick them, right? You're trying to be unexpected. Right. And so I just kept using that and it worked in the minor leagues and I got to the big leagues and there was some people who would say in, the, in the, my early pirate days that, well, we're not so sure if you can do this and do that. And then, you know, you just kind of kept cracking at it. And finally I got into a place in Boston where they let me be myself, um, at the big league level. And, and it gave me the opportunity to drop down and, and throw sidearm curveballs and stuff. And, and then you, you, you found your way. And once I found that template, you know, it obviously still morphed and evolved over time. But once I found that template, um, you know, it gave me the ability to feel like I could always 
give you, you know, quality starts, you know, two out of every three times and give you 200 innings in a season. Um, but, you know, the linchpin to that whole thing was command. Right. The linchpin to the whole thing was the only way you can change timing, change a leg kick, throw sidearm, change speeds on pitches is if you have command and feel for that. And a lot of guys, you know, they're just made a little bit different than me. I mean, there's a reason why a guy like John Stockton is such a great free throw shooter and Shaquille O'Neal is not. And it probably is not strictly because of the fact that John took more practice shots, right? I mean, there's something built in to the nervous system between the brain and the fingertips right. that are allowing him to be a little bit more consistent. I feel like I had... You know, I wasn't a hard thrower. I had relatively short arms for my height, and I felt like maybe that would help me command the ball. And I, I could always find a way to get the ball over the plate if I needed to. And and um, it helped me a lot, not walking guys and not putting yourself in compromised positions oh, yeah. based on your command. Well, command is everything. And the, being able to trust your defense and trust your stuff to allow them to get themselves out and not trying to strike guys out, keeping your pitch count down, et cetera. And I, was, I always marveled um, at you were just – you were an Iron Man. I mean, how long did you go without missing a start? I went from the time I was drafted in 1995 until 2014. That's incredible. Um, yeah. There was a time in Augusta, Georgia um, in 96 in my first year. It wasn't because of me. They just they just were like, oh, you're too skinny and it's too hot out here. We want to give you a couple of days off. So they made me take, I think, two starts off. But it wasn't anything to do with an injury. But right. that was my first year in A-ball. But um, yeah, I didn't, miss, I didn't miss any starts. I think I pitched about four over 450 times in a row. Um, and 369 of those were in the big leagues. And, you know, that was where mo most of my ego lied in that, you know, because I knew if I could, if I could tow the rubber 32 times a year, I knew I could give you 20 quality starts. Like I knew I could go 18 to 23 quality starts somewhere in that thing. And over a 10 year period, I was going to be able to give you those, those 200 quality starts. And, and, um, so for me, you know, that's why I was so obsessive about the weight room and why I was always, you know, making sure I didn't miss any days. And I was very cognizant of my sleep and my, it wasn't so much that I was thinking like, I want to win a Cy Young or I want to win 17 games. It was more about just being there, just being out there because in, even in the minor leagues and definitely at the big league level, you saw so many guys who couldn't stay healthy and you, right. and you realize that particularly nowadays. Yeah. And you, and you, you just saw them squander the opportunity, not only to make a lot of money, but to to hold kind of kind of hold the locker room together by knowing that you know when I show up to the ballpark today Johnny Cueto will be there to pitch you know because I played with guys who would come to the park and be like man I woke up wrong and I've got this unbelievably stiff neck and I can't even turn to the right and I'm not going to pitch today and then you know three months later that same person would be running up the stairs in Wrigley and slip and twist their ankle and then they wouldn't would miss a start there and you just you saw these little pockets of guys missing right. and I just said man I'm going to see how long I can go without Miss, and it didn't matter what the number was. It was just, it was just like I just want to be out there every fifth day. And I also, I also knew that I wasn't special in some other ways. I knew without that consistency, I, you know, my stuff wasn't special. So the only way to make myself special really was the fact that I was going to continue to be this machine that just didn't miss. Right. Well, even uh, when you pitched with the D-backs, um, man, you pitched hurt. Uh, didn't you? How many starts did you make, or how many pitches did you throw? With a torn UCL. Yeah, well, my, my so my shoulder was tore in spring training that year in 14. So I had a torn shoulder all 14 starts with them. But I had a cortisone shot after start three or four, which yeah. calmed that down. My UCL broke after game six. So I pitched eight starts. Um, and for those that don't know, the UCL is what Tommy John surgery. I mean, that's what. Right. The ligament that holds your two bones together in right. your arm. And it was torn, and you were out there throwing. I pitched. I pitched. Uh, Eight starts like that. I went, I went three and two with a two something ERA, and by the end, you know my arm was swelling up so bad. I pitched against Josh Beckett in Dodger Stadium, and it was the eighth start. 
I'm warming up and I literally can't even get the ball to the plate. I mean, I'm barely getting it to the plate. And I looked over at the pitching coach, Mike Harkey, and I said, hey, this is going to be the last one. I can't go anymore. And he said, okay. And I didn't know it was tour at the time. I just thought right. I had maybe my um, – How bad did it hurt each pitch? You know what? It was like it, it wasn't an unbelievable pain because you would never let it go. It was like my arm was so swollen up. It was, it was, like, if you, it was like if you had a twisted ankle and you could still walk on it, but it was that really uncomfortable you couldn't relax. Like you could never just kind of relax and do what you did. So you'd throw Ugh. a pitch and you'd kind of like be throwing it at about 85% because you knew if you relaxed that it, then it really was going to hurt. And I remember in that game, I came out of the first inning and um, and Kurt Gibson said, I got to get, get you out of the game. And I said, why? And he said, you, you threw 75 to 79. You did not throw 80 miles per hour in that inning, Bronson. And I said, listen, it's my last one. Don't worry about it. Just leave me in here. And so in the fourth inning, I remember I broke um, Ramirez's bat. I'm trying to think of who, who was the guy with the Red Sox that play, just got released last year. Big first baseman, looked like Manny. The Dreads used to play Hanley. Yeah. So Hanley, Hanley Ramirez, Ramirez. He, I broke his bat twice in that game, but I humped up with everything I had, and that one really hurt my elbow, and it was 83. And that was all I had to throw him on the inner half, and I broke his bat so and got a ground go. ball out. So you go. you got movement, youngsters out there, you can throw 83 and still break a still, bat. And I, and I beat guys out. I beat Josh Beckett that day 2-1. to one. I, wow. didn't, I didn't break 80 miles an hour, but a handful of times. When you told me that, that you were pitching with that, those tears in your shoulder and your elbow and the, you still won the game and the numbers you put up. That is the most incredible, one of the most incredible things I have ever heard. Yeah. Honestly, I don't, I don't know. That not, didn't get him a lot of pub back in the old days. I, there's no, and I'm talking pre pre 1985 probably, or maybe pre 1990 there, 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 there's probably plenty of stories out there of guys going yeah. out there pre-modern medicine and and doing those types of things but in in the modern game you're probably not going to find too many guys who are going to go out there with a with a torn um tommy john ligament and pony it up eight times i mean this thing was swelling up so bad that i would take the most powerful steroid anti-inflammatory on the planet in doses that were so ridiculous nobody had any business doing that and it wasn't it wasn't it was only taking about half of it out every fourth or fifth day and i wasn't playing catch between stars at that point you're financially secure so you're going out there just the competitor yeah. Well, they, I had I beat I beat Houston in Houston. That was the third third or fourth start into that. And Kurt Gibson and the general manager and the pitching coach called me in the office and they said, "Hey, man, we got to get you got to shut it down, man. You're hurt." I said, "I know, but I'm 37 years old. This is what you paid me to come here to do. You gave me 23 million dollars for two years, man. This is what I'm here to do. Just leave me alone. I'm just going to ride it until it explodes." Wow. And I just had to, you know, there was nothing else to do. It was, it was, you yeah. know, if I was 27, I would have shut it down earlier because you'd be playing for, you know, for hopefully a longer career. But I knew I was coming down to the end of my career. And I had just gotten there too. If I was a red, I probably would have shut it down earlier because I had already given the team eight years and I would have felt like, you know what, I've done my part here. Why don't you take care of me right now? But I had just gotten to Arizona and these guys were looking at me to try to hold this team together. We had, yeah. we, I was leading the team in wins. I had seven wins. And we got off to the horrible start. We had like three quality starts in our first like 40 games or something. So I felt indebted to go out and, and, and pitch for these guys. All right, that's part one with Bronson Arroyo. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did sitting there listening and asking the questions. In part two, we're going to get into the music aspect of things. Now, here's a relationship with much like Sean Casey with Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam. Now, can you imagine a night where Eddie Vedder is playing solo and he calls Bronson Arroyo up on stage and asks him if he can play a certain song, not knowing if he could or not. And this was sink or swim because this was a solo effort by Vedder. So it was Arroyo on guitar and that's it. It was sink or swim. 
Can you imagine? Because Eddie Vedder is his hero of this happening. And take another step beyond that. Can you imagine playing with the entire band Pearl Jam on stage at Fenway Park? We will talk about that and more. And a very special gift that Eddie Vedder gave to Bronson Arroyo in a very Eddie Vedder fashion. Lots more to talk about. That's coming up next week, part two, with our conversation with Bronson Arroyo. We invite you to follow along on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at at Jim Day TV, at Jim Day TV. Once again, hope you give us good ratings. You'll subscribe, pass the word, and let's take this thing into the future, everyone. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll check you out next week right here on the Jim Day Podcast.